Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor, especially if you're visiting this morning. We hope you enjoy your time with us. Katrina is preaching at Leaven Baptist Church this morning, so we are delighted to welcome back Graham Meeklejohn, lecturer in theology at the Scottish Baptist College, to lead our service this morning. Uh, everything we need to follow the service is on our printed order of service today, not on the screen. Please stay if you can and have a cup of tea or coffee after the service. It's always good to remember to switch your microphone on. Uh, well, good morning, it's good to be here. I'm really pleased to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, as we come into a time of worship, I wanted to start by reading uh, a scripture passage from Joel 2, uh, an Old Testament scripture. Uh, and you may be aware that today's Pentecost, and that's going to be the theme of the service today, and I think these verses are a really good way to remind us of what Pentecost is all about. So Joel 2, reading from verses 25 to 29. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Isn't that a great promise that we have, that God is going to pour out his spirit on us? And we believe that today, that the spirit is here and moving. And in that vein, we will continue our worship by singing our first song. Thank you.
As we continue our service, let's spend a moment in prayer. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Though invisible, the evidence of his work is everywhere. By the Spirit, you affirm us forever as your people. He's the first fruits of our final reconciliation, the guarantee that one day we'll live as the whole family of God. It's by the Spirit we hear you telling us that we are your children. Through the Spirit we learn more of the glory and grace of Jesus, for he is constantly revealing you to us. And by the Spirit we find peace, knowing the Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus. Through the Spirit you've gifted for service and empowered for mission. Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, may we hear afresh your command to be filled with the Spirit that we might worship and glorify you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to move. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, at the beginning of time you moved over the face of the waters. You breathe into every living being the breath of life. Come, Creator Spirit, and renew the whole creation. Holy Spirit, voice of the prophets, you kindle a passion for your truth and through them call your people to the ways of justice and compassion. Come, Spirit of righteousness, and burn in our hearts. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, by your power, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor and release those held captive. Come, liberating Spirit, and free us from oppressive powers and injustice. Holy Spirit, Advocate, Teacher, you speak to us of Christ and show us the depth of his love. Come, Spirit of truth, abide in us and lead us in the way of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, wind and flame, you fill disciples with joy and courage, empowering them to share your good news. Come, Spirit of power, make us bold witnesses of your restoring love. Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, you break down barriers of language, race and culture and heal the divisions that separate us. Come, reconciling Spirit, and unite us all in the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, come, Creator Spirit, and make us new creations. And as we hear these words, we join together, united in the Spirit, to pray the words that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done
Well, I'm hoping uh, that you might help me to, to answer this question. It's always uh, a bit of a gamble, I suppose, if I'm hoping for some audience participation, but I hope you won't let me down. Um, I'm wondering if anyone has a, a best friend or at least a really good friend and whether they're willing to share why they're a really good friend to them. Does anyone have a good friend or a best friend? Yeah. Very good friend of mine, Pierre. Yeah. Don't leave him in the red chair. Don't leave him in the red chair. And Elaine and I have known each other since we were 12, 12, 12. So just a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Great. The longevity as well as the things we've been through together. Yeah. Yep. Is it reciprocated? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I, one, my, one of my best friends is Grace, and uh, we have known each other since we were. Any. <laughs> <laughs> even, even earlier than that. Wow. So it goes back a long, long way. Great, great. Anyone else? Hopefully more people have friends than that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just not willing to share. Well, I have a, a, a really good friend. Uh, his name is Andrew. Uh, we've been friends probably only actually about 10 years now. Um, I met him when I moved down to Manchester. Uh, he's originally from Tewkesbury, um, which for anyone who doesn't know where that is, it's kind of Middle England. Let's just go broadly with that. Uh, and I'm obviously from Glasgow, and I guess Manchester was kind of halfway, and that's where we met. We both lived there um, for, for several years. Um, and we have a great friendship. Um, we've been through quite a lot in even just that short time that we've been friends, uh, highs and lows. Uh, and the great thing is we always end up seeming to have a good time together. Um, very early on in our friendship, uh, I remember, I think we were out for dinner and got to seven, eight in the evening or something like that. And, and I knew Andrew was having to move house and he was moving out of student accommodation into a new house. And, and I was sitting there and I was like, when do you have to uh, move, Andrew? And he says, today. And I'm like, so have you already done it? He's like, no, not started yet. It's like, oh. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's like caveat on that is that he was in student housing, he didn't have much furniture to move and he was only moving a street away, but he didn't have a car and he hadn't arranged anyone to help him. So it's kind of like, well, guess I'll, I'll help you then. Um, so I took my car up and we packed up and we managed to get it moved, um, but it was well after 11 o'clock for a midnight deadline before he was actually out of the house. And that kind of typifies, I guess, our relationship. I like things to be quite planned, fairly organised. Um, Andrew is much more laid back and relaxed, but we seem to balance each other out well because we always end up having a good time. And, and our, our friendship over, uh, maybe in that rocky start, solidified by me generally being his taxi driver, I think. Um, <laughs> I used to go every Tuesday, Thursday, pick him up and we'd go and play football together. And most weekends we would uh, watch football together. Our friendship survived the fact that I'm a Chelsea fan and he's a Spurs fan. We've only fallen out a few times over that. Um, but we always have a good time. Now he, uh, shortly after I moved back to Glasgow, he moved down to London. So we're now quite far apart and uh, we try and keep in touch, or at least I keep in touch with him and he responds sometimes. Um, but it's, it's different now that we're far apart. Uh, and it's good that uh, we can still communicate and keep in touch, but it's just not quite the same as having him 
uh, or being in the same city as him. And so I miss him um, as, as a good friend. Now, you might be thinking, well, where's this uh, sob story going and what relevance does it have to a Sunday morning? Well, today we celebrate Pentecost. And uh, Pentecost is the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I was trying to think, how do we describe that? How might I put that into more simple language? Because it's not an easy thing to understand. And I kind of thought, how might the disciples be feeling at Pentecost? They've followed Jesus around for three years uh, and they've been through many highs and lows with him and they've followed him and they've seen what he's done and then he goes away, he ascends to heaven and I guess they feel kind of bereft, they kind of feel alone in some ways and I'm sure they missed Jesus but Jesus assured them before he left says I'm sending you the Holy Spirit so that you know that I'll always be with you, I'll be with you until the end of the age. And so I suppose for me, Pentecost is something a bit like that. That idea of having a good friend, but knowing that they're always going to be with you. And yet it's slightly different because the Holy Spirit isn't the same as as Jesus in that Jesus was there embodied. But to have that promise that God says, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you. And I think that's what really is at the heart of Pentecost the idea that God is always with us, his presence is here on earth and is never going to leave us. So when you think of your best friend, when you think of your friends, maybe it might remind you of Pentecost, that idea that God says, I will never leave you. So that's what I'm going to unpack a bit more later on in the service. But that thought that Pentecost is about God reassuring us that he will never leave us.
The reading is Ephesians chapter 2. You once were dead because of your sins and wickedness. You followed the ways of this present world order, obeying the commander of the spiritual powers of the air, the spirit now at work among God's rebel subjects. We too were once of their number. We were ruled by our physical desires and did what instinct and evil imagination suggested. In our natural condition, we lay under the condemnation of God like the rest of mankind. But God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love for us, he brought us to life with Christ when we were dead because of our sins. It is by grace you are saved. And he raised us up in union with Christ Jesus and enthroned us with him in the heavenly realms so that he might display in the ages to come how immense are the resources of his grace and how great is kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is God's gift, not a reward for work done. There is nothing for anyone to boast of. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for the life of good deeds, which God designed for us. Remember then your former condition, Gentiles as you are by birth, the uncircumcised as you are called by those who call themselves the circumcised because of a physical right. You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the community of Israel, strangers to God's covenants and the promise that goes with them. Yours was a world without hope and without God. Once you were far off, but now in union with Christ Jesus, you have been brought near through the shedding of Christ's blood. For he is himself our peace, Gentiles and Jews, he has made the two one, and in his own body of flesh and blood has broken down the barrier of enmity which separated them. For he annulled the law with its rules and regulations, so as to create out of the two a single new humanity in himself, thereby making peace. This was his purpose, to reconcile the two in a single body to God through the cross by which he killed the enmity. So he came and promised the good news, peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both alike have access to the Father in the one spirit. Thus you are no longer aliens in a foreign land, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is bonded together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built with all the others into a spiritual dwelling for God. Amen. 
Thanks for that reading. Uh, it's a long reading. That's a it's a big passage, and and in fact, I'm not going to refer too much to it. Um, but it's it's such a rich passage, and what I would recommend is to go back and revisit that reading after I've spoken and see where some of the links and where I'm drawing on it. But as I say, I'm not going to refer necessarily directly to it today. My thoughts have gone in a slightly different direction. Um, it's a good time to be at the college. I enjoy the summer at the college. It's a wee bit quieter. I would say it's not, um, it's not totally quiet. It's just a different rhythm, a different routine. Uh, we don't have the students there at the moment, so it's the time that we get to catch up on jobs that we've maybe to put, put to one side for the year um, and said, we'll do that in the summer. And that's a long list. I can tell you it's probably the most common phrase, we'll do that in the summer. So it's time that I've um, spent updating the website. Um, we've got an uh, open evening on, on Monday coming to kind of try and engage with some potential students for next year. Uh, and then there's also the pile of books. I have two piles of books on my desk at the moment. One pile is books that I've read and uh, still need to take notes from and a big pile of books of uh, books that I want to read over the summer as I prepare for classes next term. Um, and, and I don't necessarily read them all from, from cover to cover. It's maybe just um, bits and pieces. In fact, there's very few academic books, I think, that many people read actually cover to cover. Um, most academic books have um, swathes of end notes in them, or they have uh, acknowledgements or some kind of preface, and, and usually you just skip over them and, and get to the meat of the book. Uh, usually the acknowledgements are just full of people who have helped inspire their research or um, thanking the publishers and things like that, usually quite boring information. But every now and again, you get an insight into the writing process or you get some uh, biographical information that, that, that's just really interesting. And I remember one, it wasn't even really a preface or an acknowledgement, it was more like a dedication. It was just one line at the beginning of a book by Kester Bruin. And he just writes, I might be wrong. And I think that was great. So simple, it, it stuck with me, probably because of its simplicity. I might be wrong, but also because it resonated with me. Any time that I get up to speak or to teach or, or put pen to paper, or these days it's fingertips to keyboard, um, and write something, I want to preface it with, I might be wrong. And that's not because I don't believe what I'm saying. And it's not because um, I don't feel like I've prepared well for it. But I find more and more that it's really difficult to be 100% sure that I'm right, that it's really difficult to be certain that I am definitely 100% uncategorically correct. And I think particularly in theology, it's getting, it, for me, increasingly difficult to think that I'm definitely right. And so I might be wrong. And I guess there's at least two reasons for me saying that and having that caveat. Because really what I'm saying at any given point in time is these are my best ideas. This is my best thoughts as I stand here today. And I haven't read everything in the world. And I haven't spent all of my life reflecting on everything that I've read. That my ideas even from 10 years ago have changed because I've read more. I've reflected more. And sometimes it's a complete U-turn. Because all that I can say is these are my ideas as I stand here today and so I might be wrong in 10 years time I might say something completely different and in some ways that's not a bad thing 
I think there's a healthiness to that in some ways that we can challenge our ideas. Sometimes I feel in the church we can get hung up maybe on tradition or maybe just on, on holding something hard and fast and not being willing to revisit it and challenging it. And so I think it's, it can be a healthy thing to say, I might be wrong. I think the second reason that I say that is that it brings in a certain humility. And I think this is particularly important for theology because I have to remind myself that theology is not about my ideas or about how good my thoughts, idea, my thoughts are or my ideas are. But theology is the wrestling and striving with God's revelation to his world. That ultimately I'm trying to understand better God's ideas and what God is saying and what God is revealing to the world. And so it's my ideas are just a wrestling, a striving towards a better understanding of God's revelation. And so I might be wrong. I still have time and opportunity to wrestle with God's revelation more, to develop that I, those ideas more, but I might be wrong with it. And so that's the caveat at the beginning that I might be wrong, but it's within that idea of wrestling and striving towards God's revelation to his world that I want to think about the Holy Spirit today. I've already said that today's Pentecost and the time in the church that we really have a focus on the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure uh, if the Holy Spirit is talked about much in this church, but I know across the board, sometimes the Holy Spirit is talked about lots in church. Sometimes it's almost a pariah and never spoken about in the church. Um, but usually I find that when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we tend to speak about the outcomes or the, the function of the Spirit rather than talking about who the Holy Spirit is himself. We, it's like talking about the office of the Spirit rather than the office bearer. What do I mean by that? Well, a, a, a small example, I guess, is that if you think about the Queen, the Queen has, uh, the, has certain responsibilities and duties that come with that role. For example, she hosts state visits, relevant for this week's news cycle. But she, but in that sense of hosting royal visits, says nothing about who the queen actually is. It's a function of her office. It tells us nothing about, say, Queen Elizabeth opposed to Queen Victoria. Both had the same uh, responsibility, but they were different people. And so when we only talk about the outcomes of the spirit, we sometimes forget to actually think about the spirit himself. So we talk a lot about the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit, or we talk about how the Spirit empowers us for mission or is the foundation for the church. But we don't actually ask the question, who is the Spirit? Now, talking about the outcomes of the Spirit, I think is good and beneficial. The, if we want to look at a person or find out a bit more about a person, we'll say, well, where are their priorities and what do they invest in? What do they do? Because that will tell us something about the character. So I'm not dismissing the fact that we shouldn't uh, think about the, the functions of the Spirit or the outcomes of the Spirit at all. I'm just saying it gives us a different perspective when we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And so that's what I want to wrestle with a little today. But even more than, I guess, asking who is the Holy Spirit, the way I'm going to go about it is um, statements of clarification that really are asking more who or what the Holy Spirit is not. And hopefully by asking or answering those questions, I'll be able to come to the point of making at least some kind of statement on who I think the Holy Spirit is and what impact that might have for us. So some statements of clarification of who the Holy Spirit is not. 
And I guess the first statement of clarification might seem blindingly obvious to you, um, but the Holy Spirit is not a human. Uh, As I say, that might be blindingly obvious, maybe not, but when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we tend to describe the Spirit as being the third person of the Trinity. And as soon as we use the language of person, we start to, I think, imagine the Holy Spirit as some kind of autonomous being, maybe even having some kind of shape or form to it. And so we start to kind of get mixed ideas of what the Holy Spirit might be like. And so saying that the Holy Spirit is not a human has at least these two consequences, I think, or yeah, at least two consequences. One is that the Holy Spirit is not human as in form. What we really mean by saying that the Holy Spirit is a person is that the Holy Spirit, I would say, is more personal. The difference between being a person and personal, the Holy Spirit, when we describe uh, him as a person, we're really saying the Holy Spirit is the ability to have relationships and to be in relationships And so primary to the Holy Spirit and who he is, is that it's a relational being. And so we don't mean a person as in a human form or uh, an, an autonomous individual, but rather we mean that the Holy Spirit is able to have relationships. So that's what we mean when we describe the Holy Spirit as a person. But I think the other consequence of clarifying that the Holy Spirit is not a human is that we... Uh, our our description has to change of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might hear me describing the Holy Spirit as a he or a him, sometimes even a she or a her, sometimes in my less imprecise moments, an it. Uh, But by saying that, I don't actually think that the Holy Spirit is either male nor female nor an object. Uh, It's really a limit of our language that our language requires us usually to use he or she or it um, when we're talking about someone um, or something. But actually that's to limit who God is. God is a finite being. And we're very prone as humans to project ourselves or project our own anthropology, our human identity onto things that we can't quite grasp. So I sometimes use the rather silly example but the example of saying well draw me an alien and when people start to draw an alien they usually give an alien at least nine times out of ten it'll have eyes or uh, a mouth or maybe even some kind of limbs and yet when I challenge them and say why should an alien look like that at all I mean there's as much chance of an alien looking like a big fat blob than having any sort of features that a human might have if they live in a completely different environment that you don't need to uh, move in the same way or breathe or eat in the same way then why do you need an alien to have limbs or eyes and mouth it could just be a blob and I think we do something similar with God that we project our own identity onto God and so when we describe the Holy Spirit as a he or a she or an it then we start to think of the Holy Spirit as either male or female or or a gender but but really God is beyond that God's entirety is beyond our own projections an infinite being that doesn't work in the same way doesn't have the same makeup as we do as humans and so the Holy Spirit goes beyond our anthropological 
our human identity. And so that's one of the clarifications. The Holy Spirit is not a human. It's neither uh, can we understand it as an individual autonomous being, nor I think can we describe it, uh, describe the Holy Spirit as gendered, because I think that limits who God is. So the Holy Spirit is a relational being. I think the second clarification that I want to uh, say is probably the, almost an equal and opposite to that. If the Holy Spirit is not a human, then I want to also say that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not unusual or uncommon to uh, describe the Holy Spirit or make uh, allusions to the fact that it's like this force from Star Wars for anyone who's a Star Wars fan, this invisible type of force um, that uh, comes and in some way inhabits us and causes uh, or brings certain abilities that are beyond the norm, beyond, uh, gives us some kind of superhuman or supernatural abilities, something like the force from Star Wars. And yet the Holy Spirit is not like a force at all. The Holy Spirit, as I've said, is a personal being, a being with relationships. And, and that is core to who the Holy Spirit is, a relational being. We're told in the Bible that the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit. And that's the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of God's relationship to us. That, that everything that the Holy Spirit does is to be that sense of we are sure that, God, that we are in a relationship with God because the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit. We are in a relationship with God because of the Holy Spirit. And so it's not this impersonal force that um, may act upon us but has no sense of relationship to us, will come and go as it wants. But actually the Holy Spirit says, no, I'm here, I'm in a relationship with you, I, I, I have a relationship with you, and that's how I, how I operate. And so it's important that we understand that the, the Holy Spirit is neither a, a human, um, but is a relational being, but isn't an impersonal force at the other end of the spectrum that has no concern for who we are or, or what it does to us. But in fact, the Holy Spirit is grounded in the fact that it's a relationship that shapes him forms who we are, a guarantee that we are in relationship with God. So, so these two statements of clarification, I guess the Holy Spirit is not a human and is not an impersonal force. From some of that information, I think we can start to make something of a, a statement of who the Holy Spirit is. And I'll suggest this definition or at least this phrase that I think points us towards who the Holy Spirit is. And it's that the Holy Spirit is the revelation of God to his world by being a presence within us, uniting us as one body. Let me say that again. I think the Holy Spirit is the revelation of God to his world through his presence within us, uniting us as one body. And there's three words within that phrase that I want to kind of highlight um, and say why they might have an impact on us. And that's revelation, presence, and unity. I'm glad that I remembered those three words, revelation, presence, and unity. Because I think they all have an impact on us. As the Holy Spirit, as God's revelation to his world, I think is such a powerful idea that 
the Holy Spirit is God on earth. And I think sometimes we struggle with that idea that the Holy Spirit is God's presence on earth. I don't want to set the Bible against the Holy Spirit. That would be a dangerous thing to do. And I don't think that they're in competition with one another. But I think it's really fascinating that when we want to understand or know who God is, quite often the first port of call is to go and say, well, what does the Bible say? And sometimes I wonder if that minimizes the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, that we are unsure of having the fullness of God within us. Because if the Holy Spirit really is God's revelation, God's presence on earth, then if we want to know who God is, then I would say, then our first port of call really should be to engage with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's because the Bible is more tangible and we're unsure of the intangibility of the Holy Spirit. But to really understand that the Holy Spirit and and his presence within us is the fullness of God in us is really quite a startling statement to make that God uh, is revealing himself to us through his spirit, his fullness in us. Maybe again, a slightly silly example, but I wonder if you were sat in a room with Jesus and someone comes in and says, what do you think God thinks on this? And you kind of shush Jesus to say, well, let me say what the Bible says. That seems a strange situation. And yet, if Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both members of the Trinity and both equal, then why do we sometimes play down the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, God, the fullness of God's presence within us? It's just a challenge or a, to press into that idea, to, to really make it clear to us that if we make that statement that the Holy Spirit is God and is God's revelation to the world and is living within us, then we have that fullness within us. And that's a real startling and almost shocking statement to make. So the Holy Spirit is God's revelation to his world. The Holy Spirit as presence I think is a really interesting idea as well. And it's related obviously to that idea that God dwells within us. But as the Holy Spirit, as God's presence, means that we have the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God in us. That means that we have the creator God dwelling inside of us. We have the God who resurrected Christ dwelling inside of us. We have the Father who is the creator of life dwelling inside of us. Christ who is the embodiment of life dwelling within us. The spirit who sustains life dwelling within us. The entire story of the Bible is really an account of God's relationship to the world and how he's always seeking to have his presence with his people. In Genesis, we read of Adam and Eve, and and it says that God walked with Adam and Eve, and it's God's presence in the garden. And then in the story of Israel, the early days, they have God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant that, that travels with them. And then as they settle into the land of Israel, then the temple, the Holy of Holies, becomes the place where God's presence literally rests in the center of his people. And then in Christ, we have God's embodiment walking once more amongst his people. 
as one translation of the Bible puts it, literally moves into the neighborhood. It's a great phrase. Christ moved into the neighborhood. God's presence moved into the neighborhood. And yet sometimes I think we struggle with the idea that the next step of that story, the the story that we're living in, is that the Holy Spirit is that same presence living amongst us in the world today and within us. The fullness of God, his presence within us. Again, what an encouragement sentiment that should be to us when we think of the creator God dwelling inside of us. So the Holy Spirit is revelation. The Holy Spirit is presence. And finally, the Holy Spirit as unity. As the passage alluded to this morning, that the overcoming of divisions. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit as a presence within us and through the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ, we are reconciled to the Father. It affects our peace with God, but it also impacts our relationships and our reconciliation with one another, that we share a common spirit, that just as the spirit testifies to our spirit, then we can recognize the Holy Spirit in other people as well. And as Ephesians tells us, that overcomes the barriers, um, that overcomes the the, uh, divisions between us. And I think that's a real challenge to us, to look and recognize for the Holy Spirit in other people. But also, what does it mean when we disagree on things? What does it mean when we maybe don't see eye to eye with someone, but we still recognize the common spirit? What does it mean to be united as one body? What kind of witness does that bring to us? And I think that's both an encouragement and a challenge for us to live in the unity of the Spirit because we can't be uh, at odds, we can't be unreconciled with someone if they also have the Holy Spirit. Maybe we in ourselves want to keep a distance from them, but actually I think what God is saying through the Holy Spirit, if we both claim to have the Holy Spirit, then we can't claim to be of a different body. And so it's a real challenge to us to think, If we recognize the common spirit amongst us, what does that mean for unity? What does that mean for overcoming differences? So the Holy Spirit, it's a difficult topic. And there's lots in that this morning that could be unpacked even further. That the Holy Spirit is not a human, but is relational. At its core is a relational being. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not just something that um, gives us gifts or abilities, but actually at its heart is about God's presence with us, the the guarantee of God's relationship to us. And as I said, suggested the definition that the Holy Spirit is God's revelation to his world, living within us, his presence within us, uniting us as one body. And I think that's something to challenge us and encourage us today. And I hope that's been interesting, or at least I hope that's provoked some thoughts. And I recommend that you now go back and read that passage in Ephesians and see how that might bring to life what Paul is saying in Ephesians.
thought about and we've sung about the creating spirit and the creator God present within us. And so this morning I've elected on this Pentecost Sunday to direct our prayers to creation itself. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you as a people with a greater and greater awareness of the astounding beauty of your creation. As science, education, television documentaries, and advanced technologies reveal to us the wonders of this extraordinary planet. The standard Christian narrative is that we as created humans are stewards of this creation. The standard global call is that we as world citizens are failing spectacularly at this duty. We are increasingly aware this is not, no longer at the level of slip-ups, that this is at the systemic level of deeply, deeply rooted infrastructure. We are the ones who, in the poet's words, forfeit their paradise for their pride. We implore for your forgiveness. We pray that we have not yet gone beyond return. We ask that just as in Christ you united one new humanity in the place of two Jews and Gentiles, so now your spirit would unite one new creation in the place of the old earth and its exploiters. Toward this new creation, we ask you to teach us, your people, to move from being decreators to co-creators. As a people, we're once strangers and aliens we pray now you would show us through your spirit how to not merely be responsible citizens with the natural world, but also proactive members of a revitalized household of God. If nature remains in a state of ongoing creation, may we, your people, be as it were the fertilizer once discarded dung with the stench of a profound ethic, ethical failure, helping now to rejuvenate the soil. Finally, as we too are created beings, help us to see humanity as part of the very world that suffers under our global abuse. This, of course, involves the unequal distribution of resources the greed that destroys people's habitations, the exploitation of cheap labor. We pray for all those suffering en masse for whom we have no name. And we pray for those missions like our BMS trying to address these very pressing physical needs overseas. But we also know those much closer to home, those very much with a name, a name we all know well. And in the following silence, we bring before you in our hearts those people 
and ask you to supply the pressing needs that they are perhaps even today lacking. We pray all these things in the presence and through the presence of your spirit so that we may join in the early Scottish prayer that remains anonymous as we enter each new day proud and confident to say, I rise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. Amen. God of all creation, through your goodness we have this money to offer the fruit of our labour and the skills you have given us. Take us and our possessions to do your work in the world. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming upon the church and inhabiting the life of Christian disciples. We offer you these gifts in gratitude and to express our desire for all your gifts to us to bear your fruit in our lives. Amen. Thank you. 
Lord God, I thank you that we've been able to spend this time in your presence today. But may we always know that your presence is with us, in us, dwelling within us, walking alongside us, that you're uniting us in your peace and drawing us into reconciliation with you and with one another. May we go in that peace today. Amen.